Alrighty, good morning everybody. We're looking again at the Lord's Supper. Uh, going through the Westminster Larger Catechism, today we're looking at questions 169 and 170. Uh, last week we looked at the nature of the Lord's Supper and how it blesses us, and today we're looking at uh, the administration of the Lord's Supper, so how ought it to be um, practiced, and then uh, a little bit of, um, oh man, I'm forgetting here, question 170 is dealing with um, the nature of of how we feed upon Christ in the Lord's Supper. So we're going to be looking at a bunch of uh, different smaller topics in this. I trust it'll be interesting. We're going to deal with some of the minutia. Uh, theme text from 1 Corinthians. Well, actually, I'll read the first question first. Uh, 169, how has Christ appointed bread and wine to be given and received in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Christ has appointed the ministers of his word in the administration of this sacrament of the Lord's Supper to set apart the bread and wine from common use by the word of institution, thanksgiving, and prayer, to take and break the bread, and to give both the bread and the wine to the communicants, who are, by the same appointment, to take and eat the bread and to drink the wine in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was broken and given, and his blood shed for them. Theme verse, uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 24 for I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the broken Christ, uh, broken for our deliverance and healing, but uh, renewed, made whole, raised up to new life, now reigning and ruling. And we ask that we would submit to his lordship and that we would remember him always and that you would bless to us the Lord's Supper that we might better remember and love our Lord Jesus. Help us as we look to your word in his name. Amen. Amen. So starting off, just we're going to walk through this question, the different phrases. Uh, the first one we have here is where we're told that Christ has appointed the ministers of his word in the administration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, dot, dot, dot. So the first thing we come across here is that the catechism is confessing that Christ has appointed the ministers of the word to administer the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this might strike us in a very uh, democratic society, a very everyone has the same right society. It seems odd that only ministers would be given to administer the Lord's Supper. So why, why might that be? Well, there's something about the Lord's Supper that I think we often miss, is that the Lord Jesus, in the same night he was betrayed, give th gave thanks, broke it, and distributed it. That is, in the first Lord's Supper, it was the Lord's Supper. So the Lord Jesus, he was the host of his disciples, distributing to them, serving them with bread and wine. And so... In the Lord's Supper, there is, in a sense, a Jesus role to play. That is, Christ is the one serving us in the Supper. Therefore, it's fitting that there's someone who is representing that Christ role in the distribution and serving of the Lord's Supper. Now, we believe about the ministry of the Word that ministers of the Word are commissioned ambassadors for Christ. Uh, Romans 10 talks about certain people being sent and that in their preaching, the word of Christ is heard through them. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul speaks of their role as ministers. He says, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. 
stewards who are taking care of the mysteries, and that's actually the word we get, um, or that becomes the word sacrament in the Middle Ages, mysteries. They are stewards of the mysteries, and the minister is particularly one who represents Christ to the congregation. They bear his name as ambassadors, just as someone who's representing a king from a foreign land, they'll have emissaries, ambassadors sent ones, and the particular work of their sentness is to carry the word of the king, to bring forth as official heralds, that's what the word preach means, to herald, to announce. So it's fitting that the announcers and ambassadors and emissaries of Christ are the ones most suited to represent his role in the Lord's Supper. Now, why only ministers and not ruling elders, right? So in Presbyterianism, we distinguish between ruling elders and teaching elders, which we often call pastors or ministers. And the difference here is that only the minister slash pastor um, bears that Christ representative role as an official herald. Ruling elders represent the congregation. Um, just as in a Republican society, like a republic, you have elected representatives to care for and represent the will of the people. Ruling elders are elected from within the congregation in order to serve and represent the interest in the oversight of the body. That's why ruling elders in our system of church government are ordained and um, brought up from within the local church. Whereas ministers are not called up from within a local church, they are, are ordained by the broader church basically pointing to the fact that they have a different commission than ruling elders do. They are both called to oversee and um, shepherd a congregation, but only the minister has a commission from Christ to be his representative, to represent his word proclaimed. So in that sense, ruling elders, they um, are almost akin to elders in the Old Testament, representative leaders of the people, but ministers have a prophetic role that matches more that of the Old Testament prophet who is an announcer for God and has a different calling and a different commission, even though they share much of the same responsibilities. So that's why in our system of government, only ministers are called to administrate the word or administrate the sacrament because only ministers are called by the calling on their life to be proclaimers of the word. And word and sacrament always go together. That's also why only the minister can pronounce a benediction. So the blessing on the people to declare um, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, turn his countenance towards you, be gracious to you and give you peace, that's a declaration that is fitting for the representative of God before the people. Just as Aaron and the priests, they represented God to the people, they could proclaim the blessing. Ministers are representatives of Christ who proclaim the benediction being in that we're supposed to hear Christ speaking that blessing to us. They're the mouthpiece of Christ. When the minister gives the benediction, we are to hear it as if Christ is himself speaking that word to us. Not by virtue of the pastor's godliness or gifts, but by the virtue of his role representing Christ in a unique way to us. That's why you might notice um, I'm not yet ordained, so when I end a service, I only pray a blessing. Uh, because I, don't, I haven't yet been placed in that Christ-representative role officially. So that's uh, just something you might not know. That's interesting. But in the same way, the minister is representing Christ in the administration of the Lord's Supper. And it's supposed to picture the fact that Christ himself is serving us. So when the pastor's standing behind the table, 
And again, not by virtue of his greatness, but the role he is functioning as is a representative of Christ. So when you see the pastor take the elements and serve them, we're to imagine that Christ himself is the one desiring to serve us and invite us to his table and his meal, and he is himself the one who's serving. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And so the uh, text continues that they've been appointed to set apart the bread and wine from common use by the word of institution, thanksgiving, and prayer. So again, the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. it. Uh, The word of institution, this is just like a christian term we use, and usually the way this happens is the words of institution is when the pastor's at the front and he says, let me read this passage. And they read either one of the Gospels or the 1 Corinthians 11 passage that basically just says this, I received of the Lord what I'm delivering to you to take bread and wine, break it. And the point of this is not that it does something magical, but it's reminding us that this is not any longer ordinary bread and ordinary wine, but this is food that's being set apart for a religious use. It's being set apart for a worshipful use. And it's not that you have to read that passage. Uh, You could just as easily say, hey, we're going to do the Lord's Supper now, right? Just as the fact that there's a difference from a a child um, spilling some water on them when they're eating versus being baptized. We're saying this is baptism. It's not just a water thing. It's a, uh, this water is set apart for a holy use. So By just saying, we're doing the Lord's Supper, and here's where the Bible tells us to do the Lord's Supper, we're setting apart these elements for a special use. And reflecting the practice of Christ, it says he gave thanks and broke it. So it is fitting that uh, the minister pray, give thanks for the food we're to receive. And that's a reminder that every time you see Jesus thanking God for bread, you see it at the feedings of the five and four thousand, and that's what has become our practice at mealtimes, to pray a blessing, thank God for the food he's provided for us. It's a reminder to us that this is a meal. Just as Christ would pray before he normally distributed food to his disciples, he prays, reminding us that this is a meal we're partaking. We've been invited to the table of Jesus to share a meal with him. And so there's a prayer of thanksgiving. But then there's an, also a prayer for the Lord's blessing on it. Uh, The Catechism says thanksgiving and prayer. And prayer is really important because when we pray for God to bless the supper to our use, it's reminding us that this isn't a superstitious rite, that just by doing it we receive some immediate blessing, some special effect. No, the Lord's Supper only benefits us as the Spirit of God works in our hearts, faith comes together with the word visualized, And we, therefore, need to be supplicating the Spirit for a blessing during the Lord's Supper. It's set apart by the word of institution, thanksgiving, and prayer. And the minister is, secondly, to take and break the bread, right? So Christ, it says, he broke it. And so we want to also break the bread. Uh, Sometimes uh, churches might have a big loaf that's pre-slightly sliced, and they'll break the big loaf. Sometimes you'll see Mike just grabs a little piece of bread, breaks it. But we actually want to do that breaking part, reminding us that it's Christ's broken body for us. It's his body that was once whole, but then is uh, crushed. And even spiritually, he is crushed under the Lord at Calvary's tree. And so we want to retain that symbolism. Thirdly, they're called to give both the bread and the wine to the communicants. Now, we we miss, I think, um, fourthly here. Oh, no, thirdly, sorry. 
um, giving both the bread and the wine. Um, they make a point of mentioning both, and we might miss the significance of that. But the reformers here are writing in a context where the Roman Catholic Church had been denying the wine to the common people for a long time at this point. And so they made a strong emphasis in the Reformation to emphasize what they called communion in both kinds. And this practice of withholding the cup from the common person, only allowing the priest to fully partake of the Lord's Supper, is just an uh, implication of an inappropriate doctrine, which they call transubstantiation, saying that the bread literally becomes Christ's real body, the, the wine literally becomes Christ's actual blood. And the concern was that wine, if it uh, spills a little bit, you can't really save that blood, and the blood of Christ then would easily go to waste, whereas if you spill a bit of the bread, you can usually pick up the crumbs and save Christ's body. And so they stopped letting people uh, drink the wine. But the reformers said, Christ said, this is my body given to you. This is my blood given for you. How could we deny God's people both aspects of the Lord's Supper, each having their own unique symbolism, the body broken, the blood shed for forgiveness, uh, these are really important things for us to retain. And there's actually a modern way where I think a lot of even Reformed churches have um, dipped into this practice of denying the cup to the lady. Uh, it's a practice that goes by the name of intinction. And you may have been in a church that's done this. A lot of the newer Reformed churches do this, where people come up to the front to receive communion, and someone's holding both bread and a cup, and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup. And then you end up eating basically a juice or wine-soaked piece of bread. This is one step closer to denying the um, wine to the common person. You're not actually sipping anything. You are only eating a soggy piece of bread. And so you're missing the distinct symbolism of the drinking of the wine in the Lord's Supper. And this is a practice that goes on very thoughtlessly just because of convenience. Um, when I've asked people that do this, it's only because they say it's more convenient um, to not have to distribute the little cups. But they are losing something very important in the Lord's Supper. So we want to be wary of uh, this practice of intention that's really popular right now. Maintaining the, uh, the distinct symbolisms of what we're doing. Okay, so there's a, four, uh, a few questions we could ask about what sorts of symbols should we be employing in the Lord's Supper. And the first one is we're going to ask is what type of bread should we use? Now, there's been a, a debate historically on whether the bread we use in communion should be leavened or unleavened. Okay, I don't know if you've participated in these debates. Um, some would say that it should be unleavened because the original Lord's Supper was a Passover meal. But that's actually uncertain. We actually don't know the exact day that the Lord's, or the Lord's Supper happened. It was either the Passover or it was the day before the Passover. Uh, this is one of the most difficult uh, things in scripture to determine the actual day that this occurred. And different gospels might lead you to different conclusions. So we actually aren't even sure this was an actual Passover meal. It might have been the day before. So they might have used leavened or unleavened bread. Now, leaven, it can have in scripture both positive and negative connotations, right? Think of Christ talks about the leaven of the Pharisees as something bad to avoid. But then he also talks about the kingdom of God as leaven that leavens the whole lump. So leaven, it can go either way. And I think if we're thinking of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper, unleavened bread is better at representing the uh, sufferings of Christ, 
the sadness of his death, when the Israelites were to eat unleavened bread in the Passover, it's because judgment was coming. They had to be ready to move. It was with the sacrificial lamb. And so leaven fittingly represents something we're denying ourselves. It's a worse-tasting kind of bread. It's um, representing almost the grief of Christ's suffering. Whereas leaven better represents the joy of the supper, the joy of the resurrection of Christ, that we're living in a time of feasting, a time of rejoicing. And so I think uh, you can use either leavened or unleavened bread. That was really all just to say, uh, use whatever type of bread you, you want in the Lord's Supper. I think the key there is that it's bread of the earth, it's earthy, it's sustaining, it's the common food that was most commonly used to nourish, right? Grains and carbs form the staple of most diets around the world. I think that's the thought there. This is Christ's incarnation. It's earthy. It's real. It's tangible. It's sustaining. It's, um, yeah, of the dust of the earth. Secondly, we can ask what type of drink. Um, I'm going to say right away, I think it has to be wine. We ought to be having wine in the Lord's Supper. Uh, That is the liquid that Christ instituted in the Supper. It's what the church has always practiced. Uh, Grape juice wasn't actually invented until 1869, from Mr. Welch, right? Welch's grape juice. So grape juice didn't even exist until 1869. And so I think that to partake of this new substance, it cuts us off from the history of the Christian church and how the Lord's Supper has always been practiced. Um, Wine is a better symbol of the death of Christ in its bitterness, but it's also a symbol of, a better symbol of the rejoicing as being the drink used in biblical weddings, the drink always used to connote joy in Scripture. That these symbolisms are really strong. Now, there is a thought that we, we have mentioned in Justin Martyr's writings that they uh, strongly diluted the wine. I think they, I forget the exact ratio, but it was something like a 50 to 1 ratio of them adding water to it. Now, whether that was to lower the alcohol content or just to Um, make more of it to serve more people in a church back in a poor time when they might not have had that much. Uh, We we don't really know, but it does seem like the early church watered it down. Now, this is not to say that uh, everyone ought to be forced to drink wine in the Lord's Supper if they have a strong, conscionable objection to ever taking any alcohol into their body. And I think there is a a reason to accommodate um, a weaker conscience in this, which is really what it is. And it's not right to go against conscience, even if it's going to better help you participate faithfully in the sacrament. But that said, I think we ought to work to train our consciences to align with what the Word of God calls us to. Uh, I grew up in a very strongly anti-alcohol home um, in every way. I don't think I drank any alcohol till I was like 26. Um, but so to learn to get over some of those um, initial hang-ups about uh, the dangers and worries about what one sip of alcohol might do or how it might affect someone that used to be an alcoholic in the congregation, I think we want to work to train ourselves to try to participate as fully in the sacrament the way Christ intended it as possible. Not that it's something we pass judgment on people on, but I think um, it's not a neutral thing. I, I, I think we ought to want to try to be as faithful uh, to Scripture in that as possible, But we also really in the OPC believe in giving people liberty of conscience to not be forced to participate in elements of worship that uh, might be difficult for them. So, uh, yeah, there's freedom. There's there's not judgment in that. But uh, I'm sure my opinion on that is clear. Okay, uh, a third question is, how much bread and wine should we have in the Lord's Supper? 
Now, I used to be of the mind, and a lot of people mentioned this, like, ah, oh, it should be a big meal. Like, we're just getting denied this little, a little taste of bread, a little sip of wine. Um, Christ did this at a meal. This should be, you know, let's all turn this into a meal. Well, uh, the early church did that, right? In 1 Corinthians 11, that's what they were doing. And Paul rebukes them. He says, why are you doing this potluck thing where someone's hoarding their own food, someone's drinking so much they're getting drunk? And then he says in 1 Corinthians 11, don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Um, One being hungry, one being full. And he's basically saying, I think the point we can take is that the Lord's Supper is not meant to fill our bellies. It's not meant to be a meal replacement. And that's what Paul's getting at. The point of the symbolism isn't that we come away full, but that we partake of the elements that have the symbolism of bread and wine. And we recognize that even though it's a small portion, it's representative of a larger meal. And in a sense, the smallness can remind us that the bread and wine is not the point. What we're eating and tasting, a nice full mouthful, that's not the point. The point is, Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed, and therefore I don't think we need any sort of larger uh, symbolism than what the elements themselves mean. And even the smallness, as it might make you hungry for more, it's reminding us that the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming, when we're going to partake of Christ himself in unlimited measure, an unlimited supply. So even the fact that the taste makes you want for more is a reminder that this is a foreshadowing of that eternal feast that we'll be able to enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, a last thing is that it mentions that the supper is given, right? It is served by the leaders. And so this, I think, is one more thing we ought to watch out against. It's been common, which I understand in the last couple of years, but some churches are keeping a habit of getting people pick up individual communion packets at the front door when they enter into the church. You grab a pre-made um, cup and wafer, And I understand why people were doing that during COVID, but to continue that is to lose the significance of being served. You're no longer being served the meal by a host. And so I think in all these different ways, we can lose a bit of the robustness of the symbolism of the Lord's Supper. And now this led, trying. so the point in all this is we're saying we're trying to participate fairly closely to how the original Lord's Supper actually happened. But the question is, where is the line of how close we need to get over this? And this was a real big deal to especially Baptists in England in the 1600, that the Lord's Supper had to be exactly the way Christ did it. So even things like you have to be um, reclining around a table. You have to be doing it at night because it was a supper. It was done at night. You have to use one cup that everyone passes around because that's the way it was done. Now, our uh, confession and church practice doesn't lay any of these sorts of requirements upon us. They put the line at something like, it's bread and wine that is distributed and served, uh, ate and drankin. I don't know if drankin's a word. But uh, we, we, you can kind of draw those lines in different boundaries. So some churches in Reformed denominations still put a high priority on um, communing around tables. Um, that's a, that's a good thought, I think. It's trying to get a little closer. It gets unwieldy at higher numbers. You have to do a bunch of sets, and it takes a long time. But there's a symbolism that's trying to be retained. Some churches still do a common cup, and people get really, really freaked out about the germs and stuff. But they're trying in their heart to have a faithfulness. And you can have an infinite digression here, right? So even with tables, uh, they didn't sit on chairs around tables. They reclined at the table, lying on their side, one elbow on the ground, and eating like this. 
um, I don't see any churches reclining at the tables. Um, per perhaps in some other parts of the world. I bet they still do sort of recline at the communion table. That would be pretty cool to see. But that is to say, we can never get this exact replica, because even consider, we don't have Jesus in the flesh there, right? The disciples had Jesus in the flesh. We at best have a stand-in, um, a weak representation. So uh, we don't, we don't want to get too bent out of shape about, about this stuff. And so, uh, coming from the distribution, the, this question ends saying that basically for us, number four, who are by the same appointment to take and eat the bread and to drink the wine in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was broken and given and his blood shed for them. So that's what Jesus said. Take, eat. This is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, it's a remembrancing ceremony. We remember Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed. And this is going to be getting unpacked more um, in future questions. Uh, so let's consider question 170. A lot of interesting little things to think about, eh? At least I thought so when I was studying for this. And it's interesting, the Lord's Supper has been the most contentious debate in Protestant history. This has been the debate that had most divided the early Protestant church, because um, it was a yeah, really, really big deal. Okay, 170. How do they that worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper feed upon the body and blood of Christ therein? As the body and blood of Christ are not corporally or carnally present in, with, or under bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, and yet are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements themselves are to their outward senses. So, they that worthily communicate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body and blood of Christ, not after a corporal or carnal, and carnal, but in a spiritual manner, yet truly and really, while by faith they receive and apply unto themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. So first, this answer tells us that um, when we want to know what it means to feed upon Christ's body and blood in the supper, it says Christ's body and blood are not corporally or carnally present in, with, or under the bread and the wine. Uh, this isn't so much um, looking against transubstantiation, but the Lutheran practice of consubstantiation, wherein they didn't say that the bread turned into Christ's body, but that Christ's body was all around the bread. They would use this phrase, it's in, with, and under the bread. So that's why they're particularly using that term, in, with, and under, um, against the Lutherans. And um, this was actually the big split between the Reformed and the Lutherans. There was something called the Marburg Colloquy, where the Reformed and Lutherans were going to come and try to iron out their differences and become one unified church. But Luther just wouldn't budge on this issue of the Lord's Supper. He just wouldn't stop saying, Christ said, this is my body. And he could not take that in a metaphorical way. He just had to hold to it in a literal way. And man, if that had gone through and the Reformed and Lutherans had joined together, that would have been really interesting to see how Protestant history would have unfolded. But, okay, consider Acts 3.21. Okay, this might not make sense at first, but it says about Jesus that he's the one whom heaven must receive until the times of the restitution of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets. The point of this is to say, Christ's physical body is in heaven. We believe that Christ is still united to a human body that is physically present somewhere, not right here. And so, to hold a view of the Lord's Supper, as the Lutherans and Roman Catholics do, that has Christ's real body and blood being around the Lord's Supper, it affects their theology and their Christology with how they view Christ's nature. 
So there's something in theology called the communication of properties. And this is talking about how does Christ's human nature relate to his divine nature? Because we know as a human, Christ is limited exactly as we are. But as divine, he is God. And so how does that divinity and humanity intersect? Well, the Lutherans, in order to have Christ be really present in the supper, said that Christ's divine nature can communicate directly to his human nature, thus basically superpowering his human nature. So because Christ's divine nature is omnipresent, boom, it jumps into the human nature and the human nature can become omnipresent. That's how Christ's physical body could be everywhere in the world where the Lord's Supper is being practiced throughout all history. But we say, no, that's a, that's a Christological error. The Reformed confess that both properties, natures, they communicate with the person of Christ. So if it's like a triangle, the person of Christ is the hub. You have the human nature and the divine nature, and they only communicate through the person of Christ. So Jesus Christ as a person is both limited as a human, both omnipresent as God. But that divine nature cannot jump through the person back to the human nature. It is only as the person that Christ has the properties of each. So uh, even how our Christology and ecclesiology here go together is quite interesting. And if you want to do more research on it, um, Drew McGinnis from Harvest, elder there, uh, this is what his PhD topic was on. Um, It's called in Latin the communicatio idomatum. So if you want to do some research into the communicatio idomatum, and John Calvin's views are very interesting, uh, could make an interesting research project, Marari. There you go. Something for you to study and to talk to Drew about. Um, And yet, so they're not present physically, but are spiritually present to the faith of the receiver, no less truly and really than the elements are present to their outward senses. And so this is saying, the whole point is, Christ's body and blood are spiritually present at the Lord's Supper, which is no different than saying Christ himself is present. I think we ought not make too much of how is Christ's body and his blood both spiritually present? No, the body and blood represent Christ, the person. Christ is present at the Lord's Supper as he is present in all our worship services. And it's not to say, um, and this has been said in different ways, this isn't original to me, but that it's not in the Lord's Supper that we're perceiving a different Christ, but that we're perceiving Christ differently. The Lord's Supper is a unique way that we experience the presence of Christ in worship. And just as you know, if you're an educator, you know kids have different learning styles, right? You, people talk about auditory learners, visual learners, tactile learners. God accommodates, in a sense, different perceptive styles in the church in that when we hear the word preached, we get an auditory learning. But when the Lord's Supper comes, All our other senses are engaged, not just hearing, but seeing, feeling, tasting, smelling. All our senses get engaged in this way to perceive Christ. And so God is accommodating us through this beautiful, tangible, physical, real-before-our-eyes way to perceive Christ in a different way than just by hearing. And faith can attach onto this, and um, we receive of it in a different way. And the thought here, and this kind of comes out in the Heidelberg Catechism, but is to think that as truly as this bread uh, becomes a part of me as I eat it, so truly am I united to Christ, or as real as this taste of wine is on my tongue, so real is Christ's love for me. It can remind us of the reality of our faith um, in a real way, because this is so real. 
as opposed to just um, highfalutin ideals, which it sometimes can seem like. Um, and the sacrament here, it's meant to be a faith apparatus. It's not a means where grace is literally in the bread coming to us and we're imbibing grace, but that as our faith lands on the symbolism and metaphor, our faith launches off of it unto Jesus. And it's a unique um, faith path. Our faith does best when it's working through distinct pathways. It's hard. That's why we don't just sit around and empty our minds and hope for some experience of God. We always apply, apply faith to truth, whether in meditating on scripture or in just seeing and understanding the meaning of the Lord's Supper. It's a unique faith pathway to get us to God in a different way than other pathways, though communicating the same truths, right? The truth and reality is the same. It's just a different pathway to get there. And so what does the presence then of Christ mean? If we want to experience Christ's presence in the supper, this word presence, I think, has been uh, sort of distorted um, by the charismatics who are thinking of it as some tangible um, experience of Christ, like a, like a heat or a lightning bolt or a, a, some glow that when we think, well, I want to experience the presence of Christ, which means I just want to have an experience. Well, when we're talking about the presence of a person, that's not what we're talking about. When we're talking about the presence of Christ, we're talking about what we receive from Christ being present with us. So if you're by yourself and someone is present then with you, what does that mean? It means they're present to be able to do things for you. They're present to be able to comfort you then. They're present to be able to encourage you. Uh, present to be able to just be near you. And when Christ is present with us, he's present to encourage us, to bless us, to give us his comfort, to remind us of his promises. Christ's presence isn't just a static thing. It's doing something for us, causing us then, in light of his presence, to feel that love, to feel that joy, that peace that comes from Christ himself. And that is what we get in the Lord's Supper. And so this concludes, that they that worthily communicate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper do therein feed upon the body of Christ, not after a corporal and carnal, but in a spiritual manner, Yet truly and really by faith they receive and apply unto themselves Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. As 1 Corinthians 10.16 reminds us, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And so to truly feed upon Christ, what this means for us, it means to have by faith, to have reinforced unto ourselves all the blessings we receive by the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ. All the blessings and benefits from regeneration to justification to adoption, sanctification, Christ's intercession for us, his pr preservation of us, and the glorification that awaits us. And in the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of these realities by faith and this visual aid. We're encouraged by these realities as we behold them and ponder them. And as we look at Christ through the lens of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of all that he is to us. And as we said last week, the concluding thought is that simply the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are his and he is ours. Um, if anyone has any comments or questions, we have uh, time for one or two. Well, th thank you, Jane. Jane's just appreciating uh, teaching on the Lord's Supper. 
And it's kind of you know, fun getting into some of these details and historic debates that we might not really have thought of before. But um, yeah, the blessing it can be to us, and because um, in our tradition, we do have rightly a strong words emphasis, perhaps we've had an underemphasis of um, the Lord's Supper. And perhaps that's why our Reformed tradition um, more often attracts people that are very intellectually, analytically oriented, and less the sort of uh, liberal arts-minded people that um, usually have a, a more significant experience in the Lord's Supper. Um, if you talk to people that, get, that would say they get a lot out of the supper versus a little, it often is kind of correlated with where they are on that spectrum from sort of analytical to artsy. Not that those are totally always divergent. They can go together. But uh, it's interesting to think about. So, um, any, any final thoughts, Murray? Yeah, so the difference between the language of ordinance and sacrament, uh, a lot of the Baptists are very against using the word sacrament. They think it's too Catholic, uh, but it really just means mystery. Um, I think they're pointing to different things. So the word sacrament is reminding us that these are mysterious things that God has blessed. And the word ordinance just reminds that they were ordained by Christ. So these are particular things that Christ ordained for us to practice. So I think we can rightly use both terms. And our confession and catechism does, I think, alternate those terms at different points. Uh, one more over here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Terry's asking about the frequency of the Lord's Supper. Uh, th this would probably take more time than what we have, and I hope to cover that in depth in the future. Um, so I don't think I'll say anything about it now. I think I'm going to save that for the future. And if you don't end up being at that class, uh, talk to me personally. But uh, yeah, it's a really important question. Uh, but we're out of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, thank you for the freedom that we have of him, um, in him, and all the blessings that have come to us. We thank you that we can come to you with a clean conscience, knowing we've been justified. Thank you for the hearts you've renewed in us and the glory that's awaiting us, the beauty of being a part of your adopted family. And Lord, we are weak and prone to forget, so please use every means of grace to encourage our faith, to revive our affections, to remind us of the reality that we walk in, the spiritual reality. Help us set our eyes on the things above, not below. Let us think of Christ even today. In his name we pray. Amen.